recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada, a Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors and presented by the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and the International Dark Sky Association. Added to the IES's 2021 Progress Report, this is Starving for Darkness, a podcast. Hey folks, um, before we get into Starving for Darkness here, uh, my co-host from the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast, Gregory Eric, and I are going to tell you real quick about some magicians we know at Evluma. That's E-V-L-U-M-A dot com. And you hover over products, that's right, and click on Dark Sky Friendly, Greg. Got to check out the magicians at Evluma, E-V-L-U-M-A dot com, Greg Eric. How many vendors or how many lighting manufacturers, I should say, are actually doing this? None other than right. Evluma. They're the yep. only ones that are actually focusing on it, putting product out there and saying, hey, we're going to tackle this issue head on and we, we have product for you. They cover it right there. You'll see it on the website. Kelvin temperature. They've got them all. 2K up to 5K. 2K, Lens. not 27K. 2K, brother. Two. And they yeah. have 22K. Yeah. You know, that's something that not everybody has or not anybody has. Uh, lensing. Diffusion, shields, and then dimming. Of course, you want dimming. You always talk about it, the importance of that in exterior Trolls. lighting. They've got it all with their products. you got to go to evluma.com, hover over products, and click dark sky friendly lighting. Right now, here comes Starving for Darkness. Hello, listeners and darkness lovers. Welcome to another episode of Starving for Darkness. My name is Jane Slade. I'm here with my co-host, Michael Colligan. And today, I'm so pleased to announce that our podcast was accepted into the 2021 Progress Report by the Illuminating Engineering Society. Yes, darkness is progress. And today, we are thrilled to bring on our next guest and my friend, Dr. Rajaram Bhagavatula. Dr. Bhagavatula is a senior research associate in the Division of Vehicle, Driver, and System Safety at Virginia Tech Transportation Institute. His research is focused on the human factors of the built environment, specifically lighting, and he aims to understand the effects of lighting on road user, roadway user health, safety, and behavior. So, Dr. Bhagavatula, thank you so much. And um, I'm just going to call you Raj, like I do when please, we are chatting. Um, Raj, it's so nice to have you on as a friend and as a colleague. And we start every show with the same request, which is please tell us about a dark sky experience that left you in a place of awe. Um, I have actually two. Great. Um, the first one, I'm, 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 I'm from India, if you can't tell by now, or with my name. But uh, <laughs> so I remember like on going on a field trip in 10th grade to like a nearby uh, a, a place in the mountains. It's in my, close to my hometown in the south of India. And uh, it was, I lived in a, it was in my city, it was industrial, it was like a industrial city. It had a huge steel plant and everything. So it's like the pollution was a major issue. We couldn't really see the night sky really well. But in 10th grade, I remember taking a field trip and we got delayed on the way back. And we were coming back at night through the mountains. And then I happened to look up at the night sky. And I was just taken aback by 
by by the, just the beauty uh, of the environment and nature. Like what I am missing by not looking, by not be, by being in a basically in a, a, a polluted city versus in a clean, a small hill town where you can actually see the Milky Way with your naked eye, and that was mind blowing for me. It, it, it completely changed. And the same thing happened, and I posted a picture on Instagram today on the eve of being on this podcast about Night Sky in Death Valley, which is, you know, uh, a class one Death Dark Sky Park in the U.S. And uh, I had dinner that night, and I walked out of the hotel. And this is, this is, this is, they said the hotel was basically, this is not, this is the most like polluted area in the park. But even there, sitting, sitting outside and looking at the sky just blew my mind. It's, it's. It was so hot, like 110 degrees, and but still, just the uh, night sky was just like looking at the stars and the colors. It was breathtaking. Hmm. And and I'm a photographer, so I kind of like, I I kind of feel sad every time I look at the night sky, even in my hometown, even in the town that I live in now, and like not being able to see like even half of it is mm-hmm. is is. And the fact that, you know, the kids these days, if you're living in a city, you can't even see anything other than the moon. So it, it's, 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 I feel bad and sad that, you know, these, these kids really can't experience the beauty of the night sky. And what's your yeah. second story? Uh, so I, I told two. The one is the, the one is my trip from high school. And then the second one is in Death Valley. Sorry. Both uh, of them I were supposed to buy about 20 years. So. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I should have. I should have. I caught it. Don't worry, I caught it. That's yeah. okay. I caught it. I, I, see. I see. No worries. So, Raj, I think it's really funny now because I first met you at the 2014 IES annual conference, which is actually taking place this week for the 2021 mm-hmm. conference. And it was right after Neil deGrasse Tyson gave his keynote, and we opened up into a ballroom to have cocktails. And there you were. And it's just funny that we should be meeting after, you know, a a really great keynote by an astrophysicist. And so your work, you really focus on the roadway environment. And I wanted to dig into what you actually research. So one of your most recent uh, publications was the impact of LED roadway lighting on driver sleep, health and alertness. Can you talk about your research process and your findings? So basically, one of the big um, goals of this project, and especially with the LED, you know, uh, lighting, is that you know, this is whole thing that LED lighting is, you know, rightfully so. Some of the wavelengths are not good for human circadian uh, rhythm. You know, if you get exposed to those lights, there's research that shows that you know it disrupts your circadian rhythms and you know, and your circadian entrainment. And there's also a part of research in, uh, that shows, shows that if you get exposed to these high light, these high, these lights with high blue content at night, you know, it might affect, it might improve your alertness. But the the research on alertness is kind of a mixed bag, and it's pretty context specific. So it depends on what you're doing. So and so one of the things that um, came from the fallout, like in 2016, AMA came out and said LED roadway lighting is bad for human health and everything else. So and one of the things we wanted to do as a part of the study, and there's another part of the study that's ongoing that is funded by Department of Energy. I'm not going to talk about that, but this is the one that's finished and ready to go. So uh, about this is basically trying to understand, especially from a roadway driver's perspective, 
what what does it do to driving behavior? Does it make the drivers more alert at night, or does it suppress their melatonin, which is not a full-time indicator of sleep health, but it's unfortunate that is the only thing that they can actually test very quickly instead of doing like a long-term study to figure out uh, what kind of impact it has on their long-term health to see if it suppresses melatonin, which is the hormone that is basically um, lets your body know that it's time to sleep. So. So we looked at those things, and then we also we also looked at how much light you're getting from other devices like uh, cell phones or watching TV, or if you're reading a Kindle at night before you're going to bed, or while you're looking something like watching something on your iPad. We wanted to compare the exposures that you get from these devices versus how much would you, would a driver get if they're exposed for a similar period of time and they're driving at night. So that, that's basically the gist of that study. Like, and then our results showed that it really didn't improve alertness in the driving context. Uh, there was not much of melatonin suppression as well compared to other, in terms of, again, the dosage that they got from roadway lighting to, uh, to no lighting as well. The fact that you're in a car with the headlamps that, that deflects the light, there's not a lot of statistical, statistical differences between the amount of, um, between the uh, between that and no lighting conditions, so it's not a lot of light that you're getting from driving at night in a lighted environment for two hours. That's you know I find that interesting because I know that the iPhone when it's up next to our eyes actually has a lot yeah. of circadian stimulation, but the TV mm -hmm. doesn't. So are yeah. you kind of saying it's like a similar uh, factor where the lighting is sort of so far away from the retina that it's not suppressing melatonin as a result so yeah so the dosage is pretty low like if you have so what we did was we looked at uh, so we looked we went over so IES kind of specifies 1.1 candle per meter square that's the highest level specified for roadways so we went to one point I think 1.2 I think so we went to 1.5 to see if you go but that's 25 percent over the specified level that's the average luminance of the roadway so it's really bright um, so we went and we looked at that. So the amount of light, drivers are, uh, drivers are a unique situation because they're seated behind the windshield in a car and uh, the windshield itself has a transmissivity loss. So whatever you're seeing through the windshield, and depending on like typically most of the commercial windshields are like 70, 80% light loss. So, or 80%, so you only see 80% of the light that's entering it. So, and then, so that in that, particular situation. So these results, the context is really important. So for drivers specifically who are driving from 1 to 3 a.m. in the morning, we haven't seen an immediate suppression in melatonin. That doesn't mean that if you keep driving for five years of your life at night, there wouldn't be any effects. We don't know. And and if anybody else wants to fund that study at that point, we are really interested in doing a long-term study on melatonin suppression to see how that impacts. And, and, and that, that makes sense because if you're watching TV at home, most of the people are watching TV at night, right? Nobody's watching. Everybody works during the day. So what happens if you watch TV from 8 a.m. to 10, 8 p.m. to 10 p.m.? We don't know. Every day for five years of your life, what kind of impact that has on your, on your sleep health and your long-term sleep physiology? We really don't know. So these are the things that need to be looked into into more detail. But that specific scenario, we're talking about drivers. We haven't seen enough evidence to show that it makes any kind of impact. What about the dashboard? I find that yeah, so when, when I'm yeah. driving, I find the dashboard extremely bright at night. 
and I need to turn it down. And then when I get in the car the next day to turn it on during the day, it's very dim. But I, 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 I'm aware long before I started doing Starting for Darkness, I found that dashboards have become brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter uh, over the last 15, 20 years to the point where it's very, very offensive. It's right in your eyes. Does that have the same effect as the iPhone in your eyes stimuli? Uh, so... And, I, and I'm completely aware of what you're talking about because mm. I remember when I got my new cars like five, four years ago, um, driving one night, the screen was so blue and it was freaking distracting. Yeah, I had, sure. to, I had to find, I was using that screen to navigate, but at some point it was, I had enough that I decided to turn off the screen mm. and just drive. Uh, because, yeah, and then thing is blue lights, you're, you're more, it's more glaring. Uh, for uh, for um, for drivers, so it, for in general for your eyes, it, it's it's so the brightness perception um, is a little more. You perceive them to be more brighter if it has higher amounts of blue, and that's a good question. And especially if you have you looked at the chestless interior dashes, they have yeah, like it's that, ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's yeah. basically yeah, it's very very. I don't know what the right word is. Um, it's it's it, I think it's worse than my phone in my face. To be honest with you. Um, you know, it, it, it's be, because you're not even looking at it in a way because it's yeah. hitting you from this angle from below. There, there's yeah. something going on there. I think it prevents visual acuity while looking down the road as well. I feel like I can see much better when I turn the, um, the, 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 the when I dim it, when I dim the, um, the, uh, the, the graphical user interface, yeah. you know? And, and there, there's been some studies that show that like, like, white light like broad spectrum light like mm -hmm. white has more white not is is better at um, increasing your peripheral vision so basically the sights yeah uh so maybe that's kind of like you know having that kind of that light white white light or bluish white light kind of really affects your periphery and especially especially if you're at night typically most of the time you use your periphery to detect in low light conditions you use your periphery to detect objects so your phobia because your phobia um your periphery is more is more helpful at, at low light conditions so yeah so in this study we used like a normal we, we our car uh we put it at uh, i don't remember like 0 0.2 or 0 0.3 lux so it's not a lot of light from the indoors it's it's an older it's a 2016 model didn't have like a, any fancy uh big screen touch screens in inside the car it's a standard car that we used um um, but that didn't not like even so that we accounted for that light when we were measuring. So we didn't turn those lights off from the, from the dash of the car. But uh, but that's another aspect of it that we're really interested in looking at is especially if you're doing these long term with long long distance drives with these like with these you know like with, the, with the vehicles that have these extensive touch screens inside uh, inside inside uh inside and we don't know what that kind of, how a kind of effect that that does has that does have on people's you know um circadian or actually melatonin suppression or long-term circadian health it seems really obvious to me that if you're trying to look out into the distance of darkness that you wouldn't want to put bright lights in the foreground <laughs> yeah but uh, I'm not a car designer, and I just think car designers are not lighting designers. And Mike, you're really lucky that that's even a setting that you can adjust. Yeah. Uh, I I bought a new TV, and I there there was a setting to adjust the the light level of the TV, and it's on the lowest, and I wish it could go lower. 
mm-hmm. but it won't. I totally know There's what you no mean. setting for that. So, yeah. I find that I, I same thing with me. I, I, I only watch very little TV, but when I sit down and my kids watch more than my, me and my wife, when I sit down in front of the TV, my eyes hurt right away. The first thing that happens to me is I, I feel like this pressure on my eyes and then I get used to it. Um, but yeah, there's definitely something with those dashboards. Have you guys studied temporal light modulation or saccadic per- precepts or any of this flicker, these flicker issues with respect uh, to roadway lighting? Because let me just preface it because um, we've had several, uh, you know, dark sky fans um, and darkness fans e- email us and they talk about um, epileptic seizures. Um, they talk about extreme headaches and, and nausea when driving at night. And they, they were they were attributing this, Raj, to the color temperature of the light. But I, you know, as the host of the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast, I'm very familiar with the effects of flicker, temporal light modulation, and, and the circadic percept thing that's going on yeah. when you're when you're moving very quickly across light planes and they're flickering. And I, you know, not a doctor, not a scientist, but it it seemed to correlate more with the flicker issue than it did with any color rendering. Have you guys considered looking into into that as a possible human health hazard or a driving hazard? So we have not, and I'll and I'll tell you why. And then it's a, it'll become a huge issue going forward. Is one of the things that I know that you had my boss on, Dr. Ron Gibbons, before, and he talked about adaptive lighting. And one of the things that we see, and this flicker shows up, is when you dim the lights to about 20 or 30 percent, mm-hmm. when you dim it to lower light levels, that, that's when that's when you know your flicker is more 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 more. You can actually see the flicker more clearly. Uh, but that's that's we, when it impacts everybody. Okay, yeah, that's, that's what, yeah. But like some people, it will impact if you go yeah. into a place with flickering LED lights, like when they've dimmed them, yeah. and it's just yeah. it feels it feels gross. Like everybody, as soon as you point it out to somebody, they notice it and they yeah. can't take it anymore. They can't. But and, there are people that are much more sensitive, Raj, to yeah, to so flicker. Right. Yeah, and that's true. That is true. And I actually know a couple of people, and I'm a part of the Vision Science Committee. So that that's one of the things that uh, that the committee is working on is uh, addressing flicker and having metrics for flicker and making it more standardized that people are more aware of it. And they are champions for that. Uh, Naomi Miller at PNL. Oh, for sure, the queen of flicker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then so I, I I sit in those meetings, and that's not an area that that I know much about. But I what I know is that that is a huge issue. And the other thing is there's also the temp that you said the flicker from the LED, and um, the other thing is relative motion, right? You're driving. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's worse when you're driving through it than when you're standing below it. You are you are compounding it, and if you have if you have roadway lighting that is not properly designed or that's not very uniform, or you know if there's there's a lot of dark and bright bands, you know that your speed can actually create a more uh, of a flicker in itself, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're as you're driving through space and time, you're changing the light pattern. So that yeah. so there are all these aspects that need to be looked at that uh, we haven't really had a chance to catch up on yet. If you if you get a fidget spinner, you know the fidget spinners. If you take uh-huh. a fidget spinner and go stand under your streetlights, listeners, and spin the fidget spinner, if you see a modulation, that's the light flicking off and on. You know, yeah. and and you and and you can see it on a fidget spinner. You just spin the fidget spinner, and it'll flicker. 
And if you yeah. see that, then those lights are going off and on 60 times a second from 0 to 100, from 0 to 100. And I, I, I have to think that the speed combined with the, the modulation yeah. and those saccadic precepts that, you're, that are impacting your eyes as you're driving has to create safety issues and health issues for people. There's, so one thing is in terms of safety, you know, we have like different kinds of LEDs on our test track here in terms of the ability of the drivers to detect objects or hazards on the roadway like pedestrians or small objects. Um, we haven't seen huge differences when you compare LEDs to uh, the traditional lights, like more more uh, the older light sources, like legacy light sources like like hybrid sodium, we haven't seen huge differences there in terms of if you match the light levels. In terms of yes, there's for, there's a slightly better performance of 4K, especially for smaller objects. Uh, but in general, we haven't seen like huge performance differences. That 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 means that they might. That doesn't mean that they're not there. Just doesn't mean that you know they're not big enough to be able to notice it. Um, but we isolate all the things, so I think we did a good job of isolating all the external factors. But doesn't mean that they don't because more, if if it's a percept if it's a perception, right? If it's not if you're not something that what you're quantitatively measuring or you cannot measure if it's a feeling like glare, these things are hard to measure because it's a subjective reaction to it. You know, your perception to glare is dependent on so many other factors. Like for instance, how how you slept last night, what kind of light exposure did you have in the last five week in the last five days? Did you drink alcohol last night? So all these things affect you know, a lot of subjective aspects to it that affect your perception. So I'm not. So in terms of quantitatively, I might not perform the same, but subjectively there might be some differences. And these are things that we should that we should keep looking at um, as we go forward into you know as more and more um, more and more uh, local municipalities started adopting LEDs, and that's happening every day. So like, how do we make this more safer and more better and more and uh, more efficient for everybody, essentially? That's, that should be uh, going forward. So Raj, you, you've researched driver behavior under specific lighting conditions. Can you talk about some interesting facts you've uncovered? Uh, so, <laughs> So one of the things, like what we thought was, like if you look at the, the recent report that I talked about, we looked at how people drive. So we looked at three different measures. There was so one we looked at how far can people detect these obstacles when they're driving at night, and the second one is we looked at how well they're able to keep their lane positioning in the in the vehicle, and we also looked at how sleepy are they getting in the car, and we made the task as boring as we can. You know, night driving is typically very uneventful. If you're driving on a highway at night, typically very uneventful. So we did not even put a lot of objects. So we had like 50% of the objects that are supposed to be blank. So there's nothing there. And there's only 50% of the time you see something that's very randomized. What we found out that though is for all the LEDs, the performance over time. So what we looked at is how they would, how their detection performance was changing. So every half an hour when they were driving. Or we look at every lap, so every lap is one circular on the test track. Uh, what we saw is for all the LEDs, the performance was pretty straightforward. It was not changing over lap, you know. Um, but for HPS, it started off higher in the beginning. They were performing better, mm. uh, and then as the time progressed, as you know, as you got into a two-hour, you know, as you're getting to one and a half hour, two hours, the performance kind of dipped lower and lower than the LED. So, and that was the. Why do you think that was? 
So there's two aspects of it. One is you can just straight up say, hey, SPD, it's like alertness is dropping off, people are sleeping off better. But but I would say that's very, very short-sighted because the two things are the LED and the HPS have different uniformities. And this again goes back And just back for to listeners, HPS is high pressure sodium. High pressure it's sodium. a sort of antiquated light. Or the orange colored yellowish. light of street lights, yep. the orange colored light yeah. street light type that we have largely gone the way of the dinosaur. But yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, sorry. I, I get, I go into these things and I try to like, uh, thank you for uh, that. But yeah, so the, the high pressure sodium, this yellow light, you, you think that it's, it, it has a different uniformity. So it has a different, like the way the light is distributed. So there's a difference in, they, they could, it has a more of a dark and light pattern as you drive. And then HPS, the LEDs, it's more uniform. That means that the light is, the road is very, very uniformly lit. There's not a lot of bright and dark patches if you look at it. So, so we think that it's a combination of both. And this again goes back to a little bit of flicker there and then the fatigue. So if you constantly see these, like bright and dark bands of light as you drive for two hours on a lighted road, maybe it's just visual fatigue after. It's just your eyes get tired and then you're not seeing as, you're not detecting these objects from that far away anymore. That's the one. And the other one we saw was in terms of being able to keep, uh, keep the vehicles between the lanes, there was no difference in any of the LED or the HPSs. In terms of, we also asked for a subjective rating of sleepiness. So every half an hour, we would just wake them up and say, hey, how sleepy do you think you are? And they would give you a rating on like one to six or something, one to 10 or one to six, I think. So it's got a Carolinsko sleepiness scale. And then everybody were pretty sleepy in all lighting conditions. It doesn't matter whether it's LED or HPS or no lighting. In fact, if I, if you, if I, if this is one of the things that I was expecting was that people were, were able to drive better when there was no lighting because they had to be more awake to be able to keep their car in between the two lanes. Versus when there's lighting, people relax a little more, they can see more stuff. So they, they're, whereas with no lighting, they're like, oh my God, I need to make sure there's no additional lighting to, for guidance. So I need to like really focus on, on the road. So mm -hmm. if there's a slight difference where driver were, drivers were able to, it's called a, the measure is called standard deviation of lateral position. It's like how frequently are they weaving off the central lane of the lane. So we were, we saw that in under the no lighting conditions, the, the number of the number of deviations that they had, the amount of deviation that they had was a little lower than the lighted conditions. Hmm. So yeah, so there's a bunch of. Uh, so so hang on a second here. Let me just I just want to understand this better. So roadway lighting decreased driver attention to the road. Or decrease not their significant. No, 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 what, no, no. What is it that you're describing here exactly? So the people so the, were more alert without street roadway lighting. My very, very, very minor, not a huge measure. That yeah, but if you if you extrapolate that across things, that's a major impact. Yeah. Like a little, it, a little one percent or half a percent over. No, the, it's not even. It's so statistically. It's, so my analysis told me it's just noise. Noticed. Okay. Yeah, huh. it's just nice. Sorry, not, not. It's just like random variation of the data. It's not something. Maybe if we do this a hundred more times, maybe we can see something. Maybe. Okay. Not sure yet. So this is. So it's it's a slight trend there, but not something very very that sticks out and say, oh, this is something that's really important. Yeah, but you said it. Yes, I said it. <laughs> so that's why I'm kind of trying to make sure that. But typically, right, if you're driving on a roadway and there's no lighting, 
you mm-hmm. you are more alert right? you're more you try to be more more attentive than like if you're driving at night just imagine yourself driving on a highway where you know that if if it's a lighted highway you are a little more in terms of your visual behavior you know you you can see things from far off than when there's no lighting and just you're lying on headlamps and you're driving at 45 miles an hour or you know or 40 miles an hour you are a little more attentive because you want to make sure that um you want to make sure that it's uh it, you're not you're not hitting anybody so yeah if so the what's what interests me about that specific topic is i often talk about casinos and mm-hmm. uh, how casinos use light to uh um create circadian stimulus to make people think it's daytime, removing the clocks, pumping oxygen in, and all these these things they do. Uh, is there? Did you notice at all, like at night, there's like a hypnotic effect of people driving in brighter light where they 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 seem like they're, like it's not like they're in a trance, but they're kind of like a flock of birds flying and they kind of go together down the road. Is there, did you observe any trends or anything like that where there's like mm-hmm. people move into like a sort of a different brain mode where they're, they're actually not attentive. They're, they're, they're secondary lizard brain or whatever you want to call it is driving the car. Um, did you, did you observe anything like that? Um, it's not, not in this study, but in this study, everybody were equally sleepy. So we also, mm. in addition to that, we, they were pretty drowsy by the end of the two hours that we were on the road. And this was like 3 a.m. in the morning by the time they finished the study. We also looked at, there's a measure that we use for drowsiness and driving. It's called per close. It essentially means percentage of eyes closed in a three-minute segment. So we see. So if you're if you're more drowsy, you know you're more falling asleep. So your eyes close for a longer period of time in a three-minute. So you pick like standard three-minute intervals, and then you look at how what percentage of the time were the eyes closed. Um, so we saw that in, there's no difference in terms of those measures, irrespective of what lighting conditioning. And coming back to your question about there's this thing called moth effect where uh, in, in, in highway driving, where people actually see a light source and then they just run into the light source. And a lot of the police vehicles have this issue where, you know, you're driving at night and you see one light source there, nothing else, and then you just drive into that. And uh, there was a study that one of my colleagues conducted. Um, he, uh, he, we, we were able to essentially replicate it. With, so basically that, that, that is, we have a documented case where he did, the, 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 one of the participants did run off and, and those those things are true, yeah. And people gravitate towards light sources when there's no lighting around, and uh, there's definitely that aspect of it. But in this particular study, we did not do anything. But when we had a single source of light on the road, like a like a police vehicle with the lights on or something, we did we did really see that. That has happened so many times in Ontario, where they people have yeah. ran, run driven right into police cars that are stopped on the side yeah. of the road, and now yeah. they have a law that says you have to change lanes or you can get ticketed. Yeah. Right, but it, isn't that interesting? Yep. It's called the moth. Even I, th- I think it's happened moth even among streetlights yeah. because the police car is so bright on the yep. side of the road. Isn't that interesting? That's fascinating. It's absolutely yeah, it's fascinating. Well, this is very and, supportive yeah. of what Peter Vito was saying on an episode we recorded, which is that the uh, the visual system actually is going for the brightest thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, when you're presenting these really bright things, and I, I recently had a, a car, a cop car, stopped in my neighborhood. And I could see how um, the blue lights were turning the entire facade of this apartment building blue. 
And I just thought, you know, wow, so this, so somebody had a traffic violation and now an entire residential building is being illuminated with blue light at 10 p.m. at night. Flickering, Seems too. a little flickering, flickering blue with yeah. blue light. Yeah. So I think that the traffic, that cop cars um, in their wanting to alert and using light to do that have probably taken it too far to the point as what you're saying raj of creating actual traffic accidents um or, or what you're saying mike with uh, what you're seeing in, in ontario um now raj you recently have published an article in popular science entitled our street lighting doesn't need to be this bad what yeah. makes our current lighting bad <laughs> and <laughs> and it's like in an ideal world, in an ideal world, what would make it better? So, what makes it bad? What would make it better? So, the bad, and and let me preface that by saying that it's not bad because people want it to be bad. It's not bad. It's bad because we did not have a lot of the tools that we had we have now. Um, like for instance, with HPSs, we did not we had dimmable drivers, but they were not great. Like they were not fantastic. They had that huge lead up time to dimming, and you know, and then with the HPSs, essentially you had a lot of energy that was being converted to heat, right? That's so it's a lot of it's not as efficient as the LED, and with LEDs, um, so we 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 were going, you know, and then. You're going. The, our approach to lighting was not very evidence-based or based on research. You know, we were not looking at why do we need light there, how much light do we need, why even why do we really want light there. So these are things that we did not consider before. Like partly because we there there are a lot of these towns and like uh, you like governments have these warrants. Like if there's minimum two or three night crashes a year, you have to have lighting there. So, but we haven't really had a chance to look at, or we didn't have the way to measure what is what, how does light actually impact driver behavior or crash that night. So these are so we were not we did not know that, and that's not that's not we did, because basically we did not have the technology to do stuff. But now with the data collection, the ability to collect, like we have a lighting system which we can collect in situ lighting data as you drive on the highway, so we can actually uh, assign these. Uh, like these nodes are these you know, GPS locator uh, coordinates saying this look the, the light level of this coordinate is, is so and so and it's how we can actually uh, use that data compare that data to crashes that are happening at night and say okay light uh, what is the light level and what is the effect of increasing light level on crashes and a couple of my papers are looking at what light level should we dim to so that you can actually make sure that the crashes are uh, or you're not, I mean, you cannot reduce all the crashes at night just because you have lighting. There's, a, there's, you know, most of the crashes happen because there's like multiple factors, right? If you're, if you're under the influence, if you're distracted, no matter how much light you put there, it's not going to avoid a crash. It's, you're, you're going to be a crash anyway. So basically, the whole point of the article. Or it might create a crash. Might cre <laughs> Actually, one of a, one of one of a big concern is, uh, uh, as I interact with a lot of the state DOTs, is putting lighting at night. For them, a major consider is like a fixed object off the side of the road. So, for instance, if there's no lighting and if you run off the road, right, you, you might just go into a field and just stop somewhere. Whereas, whereas if you put a huge pole there, if you hit the pole, 
you are going to die for sure at high speed. Well, the, so that's, that's a big that's a big trade off. Like if you have to put lighting, they have to consider guardrails and things like that. That would actually absorb the shock and reduce the energy and dissipate the energy, and so that the, the, the people will not die from hitting the fixed object that's the side of the road. So there's all these, uh, but but in general, like the whole uh, the whole way of looking at it is to uh, is to consider. Uh, what are the needs of a lighting system, and what is the lighting system actually addressing in that particular area? Yes. If it's if it's, if, if, if if there is uh, environmental issue, if there is a safety issue, if there is a a crime issue, if there is so looking looking at it from a more holistic way, and if you determine that there is a need for lighting, then add lighting. Jane. And then I am interrupting you because I, I I just so have I, to say this. He just said that our approach to lighting was not evidence-based. Did you hear that? Oh, oh yeah. I already have a, a comment, which is that, yeah, because we did one-for-one -one replacements, which yeah. completely changed from the lighting technology of, of high-pressure sodium to LEDs with absolutely no um, care for the absolute change in optics. So, yeah, that was not evidence-based. That was just plopping yeah. one thing in for another. Most of oh it my was. God! What's the matter with us humans, man? Why are we so dumb? <laughs> you should. Why are we so? I, I, why are we so dumb? I just like it drives me crazy. <laughs> Come on, we can do so much uh, better than this, Raj. We can do so much bad, better. If you want to be, if you want to feel bad about the human race in general, like human the species, you should read a book called Sapiens. But I read yeah, Sapiens. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of gives you a much better perspective on how I you know, I don't like Noah Yuval Harari. I don't like that guy. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of him. Uh you know, yeah. he's a bit of an anti natalist too. So yeah. But you know, uh Jane, did you wanna can I just jump in on this right now? Can I jump can I in. Yeah? yeah. So have you guys ever taken the approach that lighting is bad? Like let's instead of the because with the axiomatic presupposition which guides all of this nonsense is that if you have a problem at night you can solve it by putting light there. And the more light you put, the better. And the more uniform it is, the better. And the higher Kelvin temperature it is, the better. And now everybody knows that you've done something. And there's like this, this default to action. Something happens. People have to do something. And when it involves the night, it means you have to put a light there. And have we ever started off with saying, like liability, saying you put a light there and that's what caused the problem or that's what is the issue? Have we ever started from the axiomatic presupposition that light at night is actually a negative and not less of a positive or it needs to be engineered better or something? Have we ever started from the other end of the argument, Raj? So the looking at it from the other end of the argument, like, is number one, is that it's we don't know i don't know okay like uh, number two is i i actually I, I can't really talk about the details we've looked at some research especially one of the biggest concerns right now is pedestrian safety at night over the last 10 years there's been a lot of pedestrian crashes at night and there are some strategies that does not involve lighting uh, like putting some signs or flashing beacons at night so in a recent study, we've looked at that. We looked at how does lighting perform to, so we looked at overhead lighting, like a pole, and you put a light like a 30 feet. We also looked at like a small spotlight that goes on a, on a sign pole that just lights the sidewalk, there's a crosswalk and nothing else. So what our results show 
that without going into great detail, that having a little bit of light goes a long way if you have a crosswalk that has a higher speed limit because it's it's not just like it, it's again you know you have to look at the whole systemic perspective. I have I follow some researchers that look at kinds of crashes that are happening at night to figure out that you know what in the U.S. This, the number of SUVs have increased in, in, in as a percentage of cars in the U.S. The number of SUVs have increased. So these have higher bodies and more these are heavier. So when they hit somebody, they transfer more energy to the pedestrian. So the fatality if it's an SUV is higher. There's higher uh, alcohol driving under the influence. There's higher. Th there's, there's a lot of other factors. So one of the things uh, said is um, we coming to your question. We haven't. I don't think you're having crashes because of lighting. But I think that. But I also again. Uh, uh, say that lighting, light, lighting is not the way to, is is not is not is not the only way for safety at night. There's 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 there's, there's other aspects of it like, at, like typically on, on on speeds higher than 25 miles an hour, you're you're overdriving your headlamps at that point in time. They they do provide some benefit to you, but at speeds like 35 or higher. And they they had so having some additional light on the crosswalk, or if it's a mid-block crosswalk, it's in the middle of the road, it's not an intersection. Having some additional light does seem to have some benefit. But then again, we have to determine what that light is. Do we really need? Do we have a pedestrian crossing there? How many pedestrians are crossing from that area? And what's the trade-off? These are the things that we have to look at before we put lighting. And if there is like an endangered species there, you know, like what what happens to the light? You know, what kind of control? measures that you're taking to reduce those things. So looking at it from a more holistic point of view instead of just trying to say, um, and it's and in in, in in some cases, lighting might not be the way to go. You know, they, you have to do something else to, you know, have a, uh, like have a, have a foot over bridge. And I don't know what they're called in the US, but in India, they're called foot over bridges. So where you bridge, you, you build a small pedestrian bridge over the roads for people to cross. So, uh, so maybe if there's a lot of traffic while you may do that. So there are all these things that need to be considered, but uh, um, but I don't know if I can say that lighting is the concern in terms of like traffic safety, which is my area of expertise or driver behavior is, you know, because the data that we have shows, and I also do not agree with going to 5K or 6K. I think what we have seen is, um, three and four K are kind of decent in terms of with four K we are seeing with between four and three K we are seeing some performance difference like drop off from four K to three K, but it might not be that. But that's that's between HPS and, and LED, not between LED four K and LED three K. No, we have some data with LEDs too that shows um, uh, at higher speeds four K LED is better, slightly better than three K. Hmm. In terms okay. of and when is six uh, K being specified? No, 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 I just said six K because we have one lighting system that's six K on the road here. So I we 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 had one, but we we don't use six K. Uh, but um, I don't think I, I think the only place where six K is deployed is probably Alaska very early on in the LED adoption process. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but uh, but in general, uh, but in general, yeah, I think it's it's. 
um, going back into the context is really important. Like, like what are we trying to do here? Um, yeah. So you've examined factors about running red lights. Can you talk about that? Man, that goes back a long way. That was one of the first studies I have worked on is, um, is, is basically how looking at driver behavior as they're approaching an intersection and trying to see what, how do we predict uh, a guy who is going to violate versus a person who's not gonna, a person's not gonna go through. So, uh, so we've looked at, so we've put a data collection system on like three intersections in, in, in the town close by, and then we collected data for about six months and looked at the data and looked, just determined that there's like a lot of other factors that goes into like speed, how fast you're going, which make, which doesn't, like it's not, you don't need a scientist to tell you that. If you go fast enough, it takes long for you, you know. Long, like it, it, you can't stop their red signs and things like that. So if you're, if you're a heavy truck, it's harder to stop because you know, you're carrying more momentum. You can't stop. Um, uh, headway, like how far, you, like how clearly you can see the intersection from. So if you're coming off a mountain and suddenly there's an intersection there, that apparently makes a huge difference. So things like that, mm -hmm. yeah. So I think speed I is would also say that some lights are programmed to be more annoying and that would probably be a factor too, where the timing is not quite in sync with the way the traffic works. Yeah. But that's then, my again, own. This, that study that I did was pre-LED, and this was before my mm. time as a lighting scientist. So I was more of a driving uh, a traffic person then, yeah. So uh, yeah, that, 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 that did not have a lot of like, yeah, a lot of, um, it was not the analysis was not lighting based. It was just trying to look at trends for like why do people violate uh, when they're driving when they're uh, when they're approaching an intersection. I see. Well, you recently wrote an article about how retro reflective gear is really important for keeping pedestrians safe and bicyclists safe. And I, I love that. Um, actually, again, referencing Peter Vito, he said that on on our show that um, if we want to keep people safe, we have to illuminate in such a way that they are illuminated in their form during daylight. So yeah. by putting gear and, and, and actually creating that form, but I love that you are suggesting this because here we are all three of us in the lighting industry. And I've often said, our problem is, is that if I have a hammer, everything is a nail. And so you're actually suggesting a non hammer nail tool there, yeah. which is not lighting at all. And I, so can you talk about, um, you know, wh where you were coming from when you wrote that article? So my, um, so like one of the, one of the things that um, my boss tells, and I kind of, I agree with him in this, Ron Gibbons, he said, is that we are anti-lighting, lighting people. So we, <laughs> our goal is, so you know, am I, I guess. You, you, yeah, <laughs> so it, it's, um, our goal is to look at, you know, again, Looking at pedestrian safety, it's like just because you add lighting, it's not going to solve everything. It's not a, it's not panacea, right? It's not going to take take care of everything else and establish world peace and just put a light there and get everything. It's, it doesn't work that way. It hardly works that way. Our goal is to see, uh, is to look, especially we were, for that particular study, we were looking at how do we make pedestrians more conspicuous at night? Like how do we, like yeah. So in, in a realistic condition, there there were all these studies that were conducted in laboratories that showed if you highlight human form. Uh, you know, humans are more perceived to pick up uh, if you put your if you put a ref, uh, retro, retrospective marker on your elbows and joints, and they highlight the human form. 
uh, a lot of studies showed that in, in test track environments, in a very sterile, there's nothing else, it's just darkness, you can actually pick up humans. So what we wanted to do was, hey, is this going to work uh, if we take it out and put it on a real road when there's a lot of visual clutter behind? Like, you know, if you take a typical nighttime urban roadway, you're not the only one that's emitting light, or if you're reflecting light off, there's like traffic cones, there's like other things, there's flashing lights everywhere, there's signs. So what we did was we we asked, we looked at uh, we looked at a bunch of bicyclists and pedestrians. Actually, typically we only looked at bicyclists. We looked at now what happens if you wear a reflector marker versus you put a flashing light on the bicycle, or if you put a flashing spoke lights on the bicycle. You know what is the best way to uh, to make a bicycle more conspicuous to a driver at night? So yeah, so what essentially in that study, what we found out that if you have a flashing light. In addition to having a retroreflective marker, it's better for increasing your conspicuity as a as a as a uh, um, as a as a bicyclist. You want to make yourself as a big target as possible so that people can see you from far away. And one of the drawbacks of a retroreflective marker is that uh, it depends on the amount of light that is being reflected, right? So the concept of retroreflection is that. It, it, the bead or the, the material reflects the light back in the same direction. Typically, if you hit a surface, you know, lights get scattered everywhere. And this particular material can reflect the light back. That's why you can see it from farther away. But then that assumes that you have a headlamp that you can see it from. Or right. it's, it's beyond the range of the headlamps, right? So I think a typical range of a headlamp is about 100 meters or 300 feet. So if you're farther than 300 feet and you're driving at 55 miles an hour, for a vehicle traveling at 55 miles an hour needs about 500 feet to be able to stop safely. At 55, you hit the brakes under standard perception reaction time. Uh, if, if the driver is aware and he hits the brake really hard, it takes about 500 feet to stop. So in those conditions, right, if you are just relying on retroreflection, the driver doesn't get enough, enough distance to be able to stop safely, and that's why you can have a crash. Uh, so in addition to retroreflection, you need to have some kind of a small flashing lamp or red light, something that actually tells you from farther away that there's somebody there and you need to slow down. So yeah, that, so there's yeah there's the other ways and stuff. You can't have lighting everywhere, so you need as pedestrians. Some of these are some, especially if you're walking or running at night, it's really important. Or biking at night, it's really important to keep yourself safe and you make paint yourself as as a big as much of a bigger target as possible. So Raj, I wanted to ask you your research because, you know, I remember first coming to your talks and papers at conferences and um, I loved that you were really controlling light and trying to use it uh, only as needed and then turn lights off, um, which is an innovation in the today's lighting industry to turn lights off when we're not using them. And so what is your why though? Because is your why the safety of humans or does it is it also about the environment? I w I'm just asking about you and your why. My why, um, my why is 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 both is is mm -hmm. is safe. How can we make it safe for everyone while minimizing the impact on everything else? Um, and you know, and one of the things that is a yes. Recently, the, um, the editorial by Kevin Hauser, he talked about how human-centric lighting yeah. is, 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 is like, it, it's very bad because you're saying it's based up for you, but it's not just human-centric lighting. I think it should be like, 
I, I, I know there's a term for it. I'm, I'm just going to say it's uh, ecocentric lighting or something. We should maybe, you know, mm. you, 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 we are, you know, we are a part of the ecology. We are animals that are a part of the ecology. The plants and everything are a part of the ecology. So I think we should go from a more of a human-centric approach, which has been which essentially everything humans do is human-centric. So we should go from a, a more of a human-centric approach to a more more of a ecocentric, you know, looking at the surrounding ecology, what kind of effects of the environment on it, or light pollution, like what kind of uh, what kind of effects is is that having on everything else? Like and going back to the whole the holistic aspect of lighting, not just safety aspect. And then and then then there are certain situations where if you're near a turtle nesting ground, that takes priority. And if mm -hmm. you are in a in an area where there are a lot of pedestrians are getting are, are dying in crashes, you know maybe that where that pedestrian safety takes it. Like if it's like an urban or not a, if it's a mid-block crosswalk somewhere, that where that takes priority. And um, and and yeah, so there's there's a lot of these. It's like it's, we we are trying to be more getting. We're trying to be more context aware of lighting. I love the term ecocentric lighting, and I actually hate the term human-centric lighting. And Mike, actually, um, it came up on my phone, but it was two years ago, this day or yesterday, that you and I first met wow. um, at our the anniversary. IES annual conference. Yeah. Yes, it is, in 2019. <laughs> you and didn't send really me any flowers. Yeah. <laughs> 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 to be determined, to be determined. But, uh, but yeah, no, that's what started this podcast, that meeting at the IS mm -hmm. annual conference in, yeah. in Kentucky. Um, but I think it's, I, and we were talking about the term human-centric lighting then, yeah, yeah, and sure. I, I hate the term yeah. because it's all for humans anyway. So I just, yeah. I hate the term. And I think ecocentric lighting is, is a way better way of There's a lot. There's it. integrative lighting, biocentric yeah. lighting. There's a lot of different, you know, just to let people know, Nailed is likely going to be calling a symposium on this topic um, to gather experts and in industry together to the sponsor. That's the, Nailed is the uh, sponsor of this show uh, and the financial um, supporter. And we're thinking of calling a symposium because we've just had enough of all the different names and nobody knows what anybody else is talking about. <laughs> No, seriously. Like when you say human-centric, like what are you talking about? Are you talking about curing, um, you know, uh, skin diseases with light? Are you talking about, um, you know, preventing slips and falls using lighting systems? Are you talking about roadway safety? Are you talking about, um, like, what are you talking about? Like there's no, there, you know, we're going to call a symposium. We're going to bring everyone together and we're going to break this into different sections because there's all manner of different t things that people are talking about when they say human-centric lighting. But what's most, what's most, it, the problem is that with the term is that it, it, it d relegates everything else to distant secondary when you say human-centric exactly. lighting. You know, exactly. and it's just not when you're, t when we're talking about outdoor lighting, protecting natural darkness is human centric, right? So, you know, like, well, oh, we need more light. It, it's human centric is just a confusing, confusing term and borderline offensive to people who care a lot yes. about wildlife and are passionate about turtles or whatever. And turtles get all the play, but they're, you know, stink bugs are important too. And, um, yeah. you know, I, and the, these conversations get most difficult though. Um, I think with the lighting conversations, the safety conversations, when someone dies. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's a huge issue. And yeah, you're right. 
you know, a lot of the, and I, you know, I hate to turn it back and I know we're coming up on the end, but you talked a lot of, and Peter also mentioned this about the form of the reflectiveness or the lighting driving the recognition by the other person moving at high speeds. This really aids this. Does not highly bright uniform crosswalks, isn't that the opposite? Because when you see someone, like I find, you know, there's two problems with crosswalks at night, I find. First of all, it puts the pedestrian into a state of uh, maybe not um, being as aware as they should be of vehicle traffic, right? And the second thing is if you're under a really bright crosswalk, this is purely anecdotal for me, it's almost like you're lost in brightness. Whereas if that person was under a very poorly lit crosswalk, like a or one of those orange hanging signs we used to have in Ontario in the 80s, mm-hmm. but wearing highly reflective gear, would they not be more noticeable to the driver than being under, say, 500 lux of light? I don't know. Uh, first of all, 500 lux is... I Whatever, 40 lux. Yeah. Like, okay, 40 <laughs> lux. I mean, I'm being, yeah, I'm being uh, yeah. ridiculous, but... No, 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 I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I, I was just saying, like, yeah. I, I, so I think there are two aspects. So one of the things is... Um, so there's, and these things are we're recently coming. We've been known about this, about the physics, about the contrast. And so what happens is like, uh, so there's an interaction between overhead lighting and your vehicle headlamps. And sometimes, if it's not properly thought about, and we've started just looking at this in the last three four years, <laughs> is that there's a chance that under the impact of headlamps as well as the overhead lighting the objects might disappear because the amount of light that is hitting them, if it, that is equal to the amount of light that is illuminated behind, basically the objects will disappear. It's I have observed this effect things. on my own driving. I've observed yeah. it. And like I've noticed scary, this. I'm yeah. like, it, I can't see yeah. that person that well, actually. Yeah. yeah. And then, so one of the things is with this new study that we've just finished, and I fortunately we can't talk about it right now because it's still being reviewed, is that we are trying to address that and trying to figure out better ways to like crosswalks so that it doesn't involve like um, in, involve you know the situation that you said. How do we count for the headlamps into consideration? And most of the times, most of the times, headlamps are like oral. The street uh, crosswalk lighting um, is typically designed to make the pedestrian more visible to the to the driver. That which, which which again begs to ask the question like what are the needs of the pedestrian here? Mm-hmm. Like so there's a couple of light sources that I looked at where it's great for the driver, you know, they can see it from thousand feet, twelve twelve hundred feet. But if if I if I try to cross the road there, there's a huge glare bomb there. Yes. Totally agree. Totally no, agree. I, I, I and the pedestrians are at the crosswalk, so they're assuming that the cars can see yeah. them, and they're less yeah. attentive than if they were just crossing down the street where there was yeah. not a crosswalk. It's a co- yeah. it's a combination then, of factors yeah. there that are nuanced, so, and I don't think we understand them well enough. And we are, and that's the and that's what we're trying to do is trying to look at it. So there's a study that we're trying to look at it from a whole like we look at we're trying to look at the adaptive dimming. From a pedestrian point of view, not from a driver point. We've done enough studies from a driver point of view. Now we really want to get to the brass tacks and look at, hey, as a pedestrian, how comfortable do you feel? Do you feel safe enough? You know, if you dim the lights, do you feel safe enough to walk, or do you think it's not safe, or what do you? What do you? So we want to know all these things. So that's one of the goals is to look at it from not only from like a driver, which has been a major focus of the research in the last 20 years. So we're trying to go. We, in addition to that. 
you're trying to look at it from a pedestrian's point of view so that how much light do they actually need? How much do they, how, what light, what makes them more comfortable? So things like that. Um, and then going back to the user-centric, I come from a human factors background where I think that's where we, where we coined the human-centric aspect of it. But when we did that, we were talking about a technology and human interface. We're looking at how do we make these rockets or these, uh, these, these um, uh, fighter jets more safe? And these are very mission critical systems. Like, how do we make the software easy to interact? How do we make we make that more user centric? So these that's kind of where that kind of term originated. Where it made sense, right? It's technology mm -hmm. and human interface. Where human is that guy is flying this super expensive jet, which can crash, and or everybody can die or he can die. So we're trying to that that's where the term originated from the human centric or the human factor or the user centric aspect of it. Now the term UX or user experience is like very it's all, it's all over software and social media and everywhere. But but then again again like lighting kind of take, has taken over the term, but it's 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 right. But lighting is not like software. It only affect it doesn't only affect human beings. It affects everything else behind it. Like once you put a light there, it's it it's gonna it is gonna be unintended consequences. And then you know. And the things that we started to look in the re in, in more recently, we started to look more is about the unknown unknowns, right? The things that you don't know that you mm -hmm. don't know. So, and then, and these things you really don't know until you really go out there and experience. Which is so, most of all knowledge. Of, yes. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. And 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 that's the thing where we are, you know, where we're trying to figure out. Uh, instead of tr again going going looking at it more like, okay, if you put a light there. What's the effect on sky glow, or what's the effect on this particular hawk moth that pollinates this really uh, endangered orchid? So there's a case where you know these work zone lights, temporary lights. Apparently, they do they use work work zones in like this really area in the summer. Most of the DOTs do these work zones in the summers because that's when it, it, you know this weather is good enough to do some road work to make the roads safer again. But then that particular light is disturbing this particular small moth which is not pollinating an endangered orchid so there's all these right. things that we really did not know about these things 20 years ago <laughs> but uh now we and 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 it's it's slowly coming along sorry i'm going over but uh yeah it's 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 it's, it's really important to take into account the entire picture when you design lighting especially on road base where you can't really control a lot of it but you have you have to make sure that you design it in the perfect way so that you're trying to address most of the issues so, Raj, first of all, I want to thank you for actually taking the bull by the horns and actually doing evidence-based design with LEDs because it's just direly needed. And um, we, we need to actually put uh, research behind what we've actually done to the planet and figure out how we can do it better. And I love what you said before. You said a little bit of light goes a long way. And I wish that was the mantra for all exterior lighting at night. And, you know, you, you mentioned the, the known unknowns or the unknown knowns or however you want to put it. Um, and a lot of that is wildlife because, you know, we are so human centric. We are so focused on ourselves. And so, you know, you are a prolific photography. I follow photographer. I follow you on Instagram. Your handle is R. What, what's your handle on Instagram? RJ Bag, RJ B H A G. Yes. And you take photographs of birds, beautiful birds. So I want to close out the show by firstly just showing that you're a scientist who's also an artist. And I want to ask you, how has this connection to nature 
helps you in a meditative way, helps inform your work, um, help expand, you know, your, um, the purpose and intention of your work. Um, uh, thank you. And, uh, and one of the things that I like, like, I like birds, number one, as a photographer, or like, as a, I know that they have more receptors in their eyes than us. And mm -hmm. a because they have an extra, in addition to some of the birds, in addition to having our three cones, rods, uh, like three types of cones we have in rods, they have an extra one for the UV. So our eyes, we cannot tell how they see the nature. We cannot, we don't even know how they experience the world. Like, and some studies have shown that, that we can't tell the difference between a male and a female bird. The only way you can tell the difference between a male and a female bird is if you look through UV light and then there's a small pattern that you cannot see on the male bird or the female bird. So, wow. um, so yeah, so my fascination for lighting actually came from, uh, actually it's, it's, as, as it comes from a photographer point, photography point of view. It's all about how you tame the light to get the good picture you want. And and that's that's kind of, again, that kind of feeds into my, my uh, my philosophy with research is like, and 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 if you you can't like oversaturate your picture to get a good picture, right? You need to have the right amount of light, and that's right. that's kind of my philosophy. Is again goes back to photography. You need the right amount of light to make a great picture, whether it's a bird, or it's a Milky Way, or if it's something else. And um, and then and, and for me, it's more close because I do I do follow a lot of these birds that are very sensitive to light. And sometimes I have to get away and I have to get up at three o'clock in the morning and drive for like three hours to make sure that I'm there and there's not a lot of lighting out there. And, and that's, and yeah, so that, that, that aspect of it, that, that the nature conservation aspect of it comes from that, from my photography to be able to make sure that we are providing enough space for these birds to have, to be, to, for them to thrive, for that ecosystem to thrive. And, you know, and then again, the whole concept of how light can be disruptive to uh, how like if you are not careful about it, it can it can completely destroy your picture or it can make a bad picture very quickly so it's it's all about taming that light so that you can have very good picture and the same same thing applies to rubber it's about having the right amount of light so that you can actually provide you're providing all the benefits that it does and minimizing all the negative effects of it well that's fascinating and i was wondering how you got some of those shots because they're gorgeous and listeners if you're not following raj already uh he has gorgeous close-ups of birds that you get to see uh, a color and a detail that you wouldn't normally get to see. So I didn't realize you were waking up at three o'clock in the morning to do that. And I'm also just, you know, pleasantly surprised at your why uh, of, and of how your photography has informed your work. So thank you so much for coming on the show and bringing your wisdom and research and sharing it with us. We really appreciate your perspective. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting me be a part of it. And I really enjoyed having the conversation with you. And we need to have more of these conversations with people outside the lighting and more natural resources so that, you know, we can come up with better solutions to, to, to you know, to make, to make it a better world. Don't challenge us, Raj. Yeah. No, I think it's a great thing that you're doing. It's, it's, Thank you. it's really important to have these conversations and it's really important to ask difficult questions, you know, mm -hmm. and then, and, and as, as Young said, you know, asking the right questions half the problem is half the solution. So, mm -hmm. so unless you ask these questions, you never really know. So, yeah.
And then the fact that you talked about flicker and roadway lighting is really important. Like I've, I've never really thought about it from that point of view, but when I was thinking about the answer, I'm like, oh my, that's a point. So I, that's, I actually learned something today while I was having a conversation with you guys. So thank, thank you. you for that. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Starving for Darkness just finished up. Yeah, I love that show so much, Greg Eric. What a what a hot blaster. But you know, we gotta talk about Evluma, the supporters of Starving for Darkness. E V L U M A dot com. Hover over products and click dark sky friendly lighting the first, the magical Evluma, brother. That's right, they're doing it right and having the products you need to actually meet dark sky compliance or dark sky friendly facilities. They cover Kelvin temperature, lensing, diffusion, shields, dimming. Everything you need with two products, Area Max and OmniMax. So check that out. Come on, folks. Go to evluma.com. That's E-V-L-U-M-A.com. Hover over products and click dark sky friendly lighting. The magicians, Starving for Darkness loves you. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.